Article 1266 or Article 1266, the debtor in obligations to do shall also be released when the prestation becomes legally or physically impossible without the fault of the obliger. Effects of impossibility of performance. This article lays down an exception to the obligatory force of contract. It refers to a case when without the obliger's fault, an obligation to do becomes legally or physically impossible. The supervening impossibility of performance will result in the extinction of the debtor's obligation after restitution of what he may have received, if any, in advance from the other contracting party. The debtor incurs no liability for his inability to perform. For example, in a case the employer was held not liable for breach of an employment contract, where the second contract expressly made of the renewal of the employee's residence and work permit by the concerned authorities in Saudi Arabia, a condition to his continued employment in said country. The condition was resolutory in nature, that is, the non-renewal had the effect of resolving or rendering cancelable the employment contract and releasing the employer from its obligation to continue the employment. This impossibility must take place after the constitution of the obligation. If the obligation is impossible from the very beginning, the obligation is void. In such case, there is no obligation to be extinguished. Note that Article 1266 makes express reference to obligations to do or personal obligations. In obligations not to do, impossibility of performance can hardly take place. Kinds of impossibility. In purely personal obligations, when the personal qualifications of the obliger are involved, physical impossibility takes place when, for example, the obliger, die, I mean, the obliger dies or becomes physically incapacitated to perform the obligation. The law does not make any distinction as to whether or not the obligation can still be performed by others. However, if the impossibility is due to the fault or negligence of the obliger, he shall be liable for damages. Legal impossibility occurs when the obligation cannot be performed because it is rendered impossible by provision of law, although physically it may be possible of performance. So let's see, illustrative case. Impossibility of performance refers not to the obligation itself, but to the intended use of the money to be paid. Um, facts. S would be an undivided one-half interest in a vessel for the sum of 36,000. The sum of 10,000 was paid and it was agreed that the balance of 26,000 was to be applied by B to the cost of installing a new engine in the vessel. The vessel was wrecked by a storm, a fortuitous event. Issue is B released from the obligation to pay the balance in as much as the installation of the engine has become impossible. Held, no. The obligation of B was not limited to the duty to install a motor on the vessel. The true intention of the parties under their contract was that the unpaid balance should be applied to the installation of a motor after it had been paid by B. In other words, there was an obligation on his part to pay the balance independently of the purpose for which it was intended to be used, and this obligation to pay continued to subsist notwithstanding the fact that it has become impossible to use the money in the particular way that was intended. Number two, lack of funds is alleged for failure to fulfill an obligation. 
facts. S sold a parcel of land to B for 10,000 pesos. B said 2,000 on the signing of the contract but failed to pay the first installment on the balance. B alleged lack of funds for his failure and therefore pleaded impossibility of performance. Okay, issue is, is the contention of B tenable? Held no. The stability of commercial transactions requires that the rights of the seller be protected just as effectively as the rights of the buyer. The rule of equity jurisprudence applicable in this case is that mayor pecuniary inability to fulfill an engagement does not discharge the obligation of the contract, nor does it constitute a defense to a decree of specific performance. Number three, performance of the obligation is possible but dangerous to life and property. Facts. As a sugar central obligated itself to construct a railroad to extend to the agenda of B whenever the contour of the land, the curves and elevations permit the same. It was later shown that while it was very possible to construct the railroad to B's agenda to do so, would be very dangerous. B instituted action against S for breach of contract to construct the railroad in question and to recover damages arising from his inability to mill the cane planted on his agenda. Issue. May one obligate himself to do something which when accomplished will prove to be dangerous to life and property? Held no. The contract in question was a general contract of the form used by the central and various proprietors of sugarcane fields. It was intended to be limited in particular application to agendas not impeded by physical impossibility. The contract was qualified by an implied condition which, if given practical effect, results in absolving S from its promise not to sanction an exception to the general rule would run counter to public policy and the law by forcing the performance of a contract undesirable and harmful. Number four. Performance would violate a government order and be contrary to public policy. Facts E. The lessee failed during the Japanese occupation to comply with the terms of his contract for the lease of, a, of an agenda dedicated to the planting of sugarcane. The failure was due to an order of the President of the Philippines suspending the milling of sugarcane or prohibiting such planting during the enemy occupation or to the fact that E was prevented from doing so by the uncertain conditions of peace and order then prevailing, which the courts may well take judicial notice thereof. Issue, should E be relieved from responsibility for such failure? Held yes. In the light of the authorities and precedents, such causes are deemed sufficient to justify non-fulfillment. This is more so if we take into account the fact that the that to produce or mill sugarcane at that time was contrary to public policy as it would be giving aid and comfort to the enemy and was in violation of a specific order emanating from our legitimate government to forestall any help that may be rendered the enemy in his war effort. It being an undisputed fact that sugar is essential not only to feed the enemy but as raw material for fuel to bolster up his war machine. Number five. Consignee refused to take delivery of overshipment of goods on the ground that it would cause it to violate customs, tariff, and central bank rules and regulations. Facts, SLS, private respondent, 
a foreign shipping company, received at its Hong Kong terminal a sealed container containing 76 bales of unsorted waste paper for shipment to KHPP petitioner in Manila. A bill of lading to cover the shipment was issued to SLS. Despite notices of arrival, KHPP failed to discharge the shipment from the container. Demurrage charges accrued after numerous demands, SLS commenced the civil action for collection and damages. In its answer, KHPP alleged that it purchased 50 tons of waste paper from the shipper in Hong Kong that the shipment SLS was asking KHPP to accept was 20 metric tons, which is 10 metric tons more than the remaining balance. That if KHPP were to accept the shipment, it would be violating central bank rules and regulations and customs and tariff laws, and that the cause of the action would be against the shipper, which contracted SLS service. Issue. Did KHPP violate the terms of the bill of lading by its prolonged failure to receive and discharge the cargo from SLS vessel and thus become liable for demurrage to the latter? Held, yes. Petitioner liable for demurrage. Petitioner's attempt to evade its obligation to receive the shipment on the pretext that this may cause it to violate customs, tariff, and central bank laws must likewise fail. Mere apprehension of violating said laws without a clear demonstration that taking delivery of the shipment has become legally impossible cannot defeat the petitioner's contractual obligation and liability under the Bill of Lading. In the case of Bar, the prolonged failure of petitioner to receive and discharge the cargo from the private respondent's vessel constitutes a violation of the terms of the Bill of Lading, it should thus be liable for demurrage to the former. Next, petitioner's remedy against seller or shipper. The discrepancy between the amount of goods indicated in the invoice and the amount in the Bill of Lading cannot negate petitioner's obligation to private respondent arising from the contract of transportation. Furthermore, private respondent as carrier had no knowledge of the content of the container. The contract of carriage was under the arrangement known as shipper's load and account. The shipper was solely responsible for the loading of the container while the carrier was oblivious to the content of the shipment. Petitioner's remedy in case of overshipment lies against the seller or the shipper, not against the carrier. Next, number six, performance of obligation by principal is prevented by the government or the obligi facts under the terms of a bond in favor of the government, the surety will answer for the judgment which may be rendered against D, the defendant, should he fail to return to the Philippines. The Department of Foreign Affairs banned D from returning to the Philippines issue. Is the surety liable under the bond to the government for failure of D to return to the Philippines? Held no. In this case, the principal obligation of returning to the Philippines has been extinguished by the action of the government of the Ligi in preventing such return. Consequently, the accessory obligation of the surety is likewise extinguished and the bond released of its liability. Number seven. <clears throat> performance of obligation in favor of Ligi is prevented by the government. Facts. Pursuant to con a contract, the corporation agreed to act as an agent of N, NARIC, in exporting rice and corn on a no-dollar remittance or barter basis and in importing certain collateral goods in exchange, therefore, and to buy from N the said collateral goods. The Charter of N, this is RA number 633, authorizes it to engage in barter agreements 
and to import such goods tax-free. Almost half of the goods were imported and they paid for them as they were received. Because of the change of administration in the government, barter transactions were suspended. They was not able to import the remaining collateral goods worth 480,000 U.S. dollars issue. Is they liable to end for the balance of value of the rice and corn exported for its failure to import and buy the collateral goods subject of the contract held? No. The obligation of D to import and buy the collateral goods become unenforceable when their importation become legally impossible due to the suspension of barter transactions and the refusal to renew the barter permit by the government, of which N succeeded by the Rice and Corn Administration was an agency. It was the duty of N to make the necessary representation with the government to enable D to import the remaining collateral goods. The contract has reciprocal stipulations which must be given force and effect. Consequently, N has no cause of action until it has secured the necessary import permit and it brings in the remaining collateral goods worth 480,000 U.S. dollars. Eight, the lessee decided to cancel or discontinue with the lease contract due to financial as well as technical difficulties. Facts. In reply to the lessors, the private respondent's letter, requesting payment of the first annual rental in the amount of 240000 which was due and payable upon the execution of the contract. Classy or the petitioner argued that under the contract of lease, payment of rental would commence on the date of the issuance of an industrial clearance by the defunct Ministry of Human Settlements and not from the date of the signing of the contract. The lessors refused to accede to the lessee's request for the pre-termination of the contract of lease of the premises to be used as site for a rock-crushing plant and field office, sleeping quarters, and canteen mess hall. Issue, has the lessee the right to refuse to pay the rentals as stipulated in the contract of lease and to pre-terminate the contract held, suspensive condition fulfilled? Petitioner was held as stopped from claiming that the temporary use permit valid for two years issued by the Ministry of Human Settlements was not the industrial clearance contemplated in the contract, having considered the permits as industrial clearance and recognized its obligation to pay rentals, counted from the date the permit was issued. Moreover, the reason of petitioner in discontinuing this project and consequently cancelling the lease contract was financial as well as technical difficulties, not the alleged insufficiency of the temporary use permit. Um, Article 1266 not applicable. Invoking Article 1266 and the principles of rebus sectantibus, Petitioner asserts that it should be released from the obligatory force of the contract of lease because the purpose of the contract did not materialize due to unforeseen events and causes beyond its control due to the abrupt change in political climate after the Exa Revolution financial difficulties. It is a fundamental rule that contracts once perfected bind both contracting parties and obligations arising therefrom have the force of law between the parties and should be complied with in good faith. But the law recognizes exceptions to the principle of the obligatory force of contracts. One exception is laid down in Article 1266 of the Civil Code. Petitioner cannot, however, successfully take refuge in the said article since it is applicable only to obligations to do and not to obligations to give. An obligation to do includes all kinds of work or service, while an obligation to give is a prestation, which consists in the delivery of a movable or an immovable thing in order to create a real right or for the use of the recipient or for its simple possession in order 
or in order to return it to, the, to its owner. The obligation to pay rentals or delivering this thing in a contract of lease falls within the protection to give. Hence, it is not covered within the scope of Article 1266. At any rate, the unforeseen events and causes mentioned by petitioner are not the legal or physical impossibilities contemplated in the said article. Besides, petitioner failed to state specifically the circumstances brought about by the abrupt change in the political climate in the country except the prevailing uncertainties in government policies on infrastructure projects. Article 1267, not applicable, the principle of rebus sectantibus neither fits in with the facts of the case. Under the, this theory, the parties who stipulate in the light of certain prevailing conditions, and once these conditions cease to exist, the contract also ceases to exist. This theory is said to be the basis of Article 1267 of the Civil Code. This article, which enunciates the doctrine of unforeseen events, is not, however, an absolute application of the principle of Revis Sextantibus, which would endanger the security of contractual relations. The parties to the contract must be presumed to have assumed the risk of unfavorable developments. It is therefore only in absolute exceptional changes of circumstances that equity demands assistance for the debtor. In this case, petitioner wants this court to believe that the abrupt change in the political climate of the country after the ELSA revolution and its pure financial condition rendered the performance of the lease contract impractical and inimical to the corporate survival of the petitioner. The court cannot subscribe to this argument. Petitioner entered into a contract with private respondents on November 18, 1985. Prior thereto, it is of judicial notice that after the assassination of Senator Aquino on August 21, 1983, the country has experienced political upheavals, turmoils, almost daily mass demonstrations, unprecedented inflation, peace and order deterioration, the Aquino trial, and many other things that brought about the hatred of people even against crony corporations. On November 3, 1985, President Marcos, being interviewed live on U.S. television, announced that there would be a snap election scheduled for February 7, 1986. On November 18, 1985, notwithstanding the above, Petitioner PNCC entered into the contract of lease with private respondent with open eyes of the deteriorating conditions of the country. Number four, pecuniary inability, not a defense. Anand petitioners allege poor financial condition. The same will neither release petitioner from the binding effect of the contract of lease, as held in Central Bank versus Court of Appeals. Cited by private respondents, mere, mere pecuniary inability to fulfill an engagement does not discharge a contractual obligation, nor does it constitute a defense to an action for specific performance. Number five, motive or particular purpose of lessee in entering into the contract irrelevant. With regard to the non-materialization non of petitioner's particular purpose in entering into the contract of lease, to use the lease premises as a site of a rock-crushing plant, the same will not invalidate the contract. The cost or essential purpose in a contract, uh, in a contract of lease, the use or enjoyment of a thing. As a general principle, the motive or particular purpose of a party is entering into a contract does not affect the validity nor existence of the contract. An exception is when the realization of such motive or particular purpose has been made a condition upon which the contract is made to depend. The exception does not apply here. Natural impossibility and impossibility, in fact, distinguish. In considering the effect of impossibility of performance of a contract on the rights of the parties, it is necessary to keep in mind the distinction between natural impossibility and impassibility, in fact. So let's discuss this. Number one, 
natural impossibility, which must consist in the nature of the thing to be done and not in the inability of the party to do so. It must appear that the thing to be done cannot by any means be accomplished. And next, impossibility in fact, in the absence of inherent impossibility in the nature of the thing stipulated to be performed, which is only improbable or out of the power of the obliger. The first class of impossibility goes to the consideration and renders the contract void. The second does not. So to understand this further, let's have an example. Example number one. Under orders pursuant to a commandering statute during the World War, the entire product of a manufacturer was taken by the government. It was held that such action excused non-performance of a contract by such manufacturer to supply civilian trade. Number two, S obligates himself to deliver certain goods to B. The goods perish through a war or in a shipwreck. Performance is excused. The destruction operating to extinguish the obligation. Here, the doing of the thing which S finds impossible is the foundation of the undertaking. Number three, in the second example, if S is unable to deliver the goods promised and his inability arises not from their destruction, but from, say, his inability to raise money to buy them due to sickness, typhoon, or the like, his liability is not discharged. In this case, the impossibility partakes of the nature of the risk which S took within the limits of his undertaking of being able to perform. It is a contingency which he could have taken due precaution to guard against in the contract. Illustrative case, obligation of lessee to pay the rentals corresponding to the period of dispossession, resulting by virtue of a mere trespass. Um, by virtue of a contract of lease executed on December 23, 1940, our lease to E-Corporation. Um, two parcels of land for a period of 10 years, renewable for another 10 years at the option of the lessee. Upon the entry of Japanese troops in December 1941, they seized the premises and used them through the period of occupation as a sentry post. The officers of Leslie Corporation, being American citizens, were interned by the invaders and the said company was closed throughout that period. After the liberation, he again took over the premises but tendered payment for rent from February 1945 only. It had not paid rent from January 1942. Issue has are the right to recover the unpaid rent from January 1942 and to rescind the contract of lease held yes he would be relieved from the obligation to pay rent if the subject matter of the lease were this possible had disappeared for the personal occupation of the premises is the foundation of the contract the consideration that induced e to enter into the agreement but a mere trespass with which the landlord has nothing to do is a casual disturbance not going to the essence of the undertaking it is a collateral incident which might have been provided for by a proper stipulation. Number two, no, the failure of E to pay rent during the war was due to impossibility inherent in the nature of the thing to be performed in this aspect of the contract. <clears throat> the payment of rent was the very thing promised by E. 
the very foundation, the sole consideration of the contract for R, and its failure to make good the promise was due to causes over which it had no control and for which it in no manner was, a was at fault. The war led to its officers' incarceration or internment and preventing them from receiving cash from their principal or from working to earn money. There is no difference in the animating principle involved between this case and that of a promisor who is unable to fulfill a promise to sell a house because the house was burned down. Um, in Paras, there is a dissenting opinion after he had lost possession of the land. Due to the fact that the Japanese forces seized the same in December 1941 and continuously used it as a sentry post during the entire period of the military occupation, and that the officers of E were interned, the latter should be excused from paying the rentals for the period of its dispossession. This is simple justice. It is true that R cannot be blamed for the ejection of E by the Japanese. But this circumstance merely releases R from any liability for damage resulting to E. It cannot warrant the collection by R of the rentals during a period E without fault was not in the peaceful enjoyment of the lease.